This is episode 10 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of the concept you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox, to play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with Dave Rempis on the afternoon of April 30th, 2016, in his living room in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago. Dave is a Chicago-based saxophonist, band leader, and music presenter who plays in tons of working groups, as well as in many one-off improvised contexts. You're currently hearing me talk over Waterfowl Run Amok by the Rempus Percussion Quartet from their album Cash and Carry. At the end of this interview, you'll hear Four Max by his band Ballister from their album Worse for the Wear. Both came out in 2015 on the label that Dave runs, Aerophonic Records. Yes, on top of everything else, he runs a record label. To find out more about Dave's different projects, upcoming performances, and that sort of thing, check out DaveRemphis.com and AerophonicRecords.com. That's Aerophonic spelled A-E at the beginning. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can also stream it at now-is.org, where you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for Dave. Feel free to also like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, Dave Rempis. I haven't heard this in a while, actually, which is part of the reason I'm, like, listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, it's Coltrane from uh, Interstellar Space, and it's, I mean... This whole period of Coltrane, for me, was definitely one of the first more adventurous um, types of music I really got into, um, like, around high school, I would say. It was the gateway through his earlier... Recording? Yeah, certainly. I mean, for me, I progressed from really more from his Atlantic stuff and his stuff with Miles in the late 50s, and pretty much went through his catalog almost chronologically in terms of the way I listened to him. I think there was a point where I acquired 10 or 12 records all at the same time, or, you know, but really I think the way I listened to it and progressed through his music was chronologically. And um, getting to this point of, you know, say like Transition, Love Supreme, um, uh, some of the later stuff, and then getting into this, which I think was from 66 or late 65. Um, uh, I think it's, I read that it was recorded in, in early 67, that might be. Yeah, right? okay. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. this one, one right was before, one of the last shortly recordings. Shortly before he died, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, this pretty much sets the patent as far as saxophone drone duos go. Sure, yeah, yeah, which yeah. you obviously I mean, are interested in. Yeah, and as I said, I haven't listened to this in quite a while. I mean, it's interesting to go back and hear it. I mean, yeah. even the way it's recorded, like, on the drums, there's so much high-end, you know what I mean? It's, like, a lot less body of the drums. You hear a lot more cymbals and, and like, lighter sounds in a way, even though it's pretty heavy music, you know? Sure. Um, which is kind of the first thing that actually sticks out to me, even though I've listened to this a million times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing about this period of Coltrane to me, and I mean really his whole career, is just the fact that he kept evolving so much and he kept looking at the people around him, many of whom were far younger 
um, for inspiration and for ideas. And I mean, particularly this stuff, you really, to me, I hear Pharaoh influencing him and Eiler influencing him, certainly. Um, uh, which is really amazing considering who he was at the time and his stature and everything that he was still like searching and changing and, and looking at these younger voices um, and incorporating those people into his bands. I mean, Pharaoh uh, in particular. Um, yeah. Meditations was one I forgot to mention, oh, yeah. um, which was another recording of his that I got that, I mean, that was one that I, man, I just listened to that so many times. Right. Right. In the cassette player in my yeah. <laughs> in my car, I can definitely hear that opening thing, the the overblowing thing of them yeah. they do With together. I can them. definitely hear that as being a big influence on you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I Pharaoh's definitely a big influence on me, and, and uh, not that I can even pretend to do what he does. You know, some of the sounds he gets out of the instrument are just like still a mystery to me as yeah. to how he does some of those right. things. Um, when you listen to those, do you like? Do you have like exploratory research time where you try to figure out? Oh no, not anymore. I've given up. You know. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, in terms of technical stuff, at least with myself at this point in time, I feel like I've pretty much learned what I'm going to learn technically on the instrument, and now it's more a matter of just doing with those techniques what I can. I mean, right. there there was a period where, I, when I was younger, when I was trying to figure out, you know, how do Evan Parker and Moss Gustafson do these insane articulations and yeah. you know um, some of it I got to and some of I some of it I didn't yeah. and you know after trying for a long time I kind of gave up on the parts that I didn't and just feel like well okay that's just you know that's not a part of my vocabulary basically and as an improviser I'm not being asked to execute something the way sure. like a classical saxophonist or something might you know sure. so classical saxophonist sorry <laughs> a funny phrase. <laughs> I mean, they exist, don't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I heard, of. <laughs> I heard you were almost going to be one. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. I bailed on that quickly. But I mean, yeah. a lot of that music is very much technically driven by all sorts of sure. extended technique stuff. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think that the fact that you, you just said you feel like you're done acquiring new things and you're, you're currently devoting yourself to expressing, or however you just said that, to express making creative expression with them. Do you think that is in contrast to what you just said about Coltrane, who is constantly kind of pushing himself into new directions and learning new things? No, no I mean, I, I think I'm talking more about like basic technical building blocks sure. than I am about... I, I think all musicians continue to grow and change what they do, but, you know, I, I think it's a matter of taking those, like, just from the standpoint of technique, taking these basic building blocks that you have and... and those continue to evolve, but, you know, there's certain techniques that I've just, you know, realized I'm not going to be able to do. There's certain types of slap tongues, for example, that I just have never been able to figure out how to do, right. and, you know, it's just not something it's I... Not your thing. Yeah, yeah it's sure, just something sure. you've got another You've got a lot of things. Yeah, there's like plenty of things to focus on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's funny. I was thinking, for, I don't know why, earlier about Fred Anderson... And he's somebody who I just heard over many, many years, you know, quite regularly. And he doesn't sound radically different to me from, you know, say 1999 versus 2009. Mm -hmm. But seeing him play regularly, it was like there was this thing where he was working on 
his material and and like refining things every single time he played you know like just bit by bit by bit like really grinding it down um and it's an interesting approach as an artist you know and and one that i really respect And, and you know there were certain gigs that i would hear of his where it was like wow it was pretty frequent actually where I'd say, man, I've never heard Fred do that before. You know? yeah. And it's not like he started pulling out a weird you know, technical thing or something, right. but just what he was doing with the thing he'd already developed right. had just transitioned slightly over here. And it, you know, it was, yeah. it's kind of amazing to hear that stuff like unfold. Sure, there's techniques and then there's making music. Out of yeah, music. exactly, yeah. Yeah. which are two very different things. Yeah, yeah. I read a criticism of Coltrane one time that or a statement about Coltrane, I guess, that I think came from Ornette. He said Coltrane was a great saxophone player who got far too hung up in technique and in patterns, Hmm. which I thought was pretty amazing at the time. You know, I mean, those are two saxophone players who I respect and love immensely. But hearing Ornette say that, I mean, yeah, there's... I mean, Coltrane definitely had a very kind of methodical approach to what he was doing and how he was building his language out right. at times in an almost mathematical way you know uh, I mean literally in a mathematical way yeah. I mean some of the intervals he's dealing with and and, um, and in this period in a lot of ways I feel like he started to break away from that a little bit more and really start to deal with like maybe some of the more sound oriented things that Pharaoh and Eiler were bringing, you know, and really start delving into like less um, pattern or interval driven type things and, and get into these, you know, more in a way almost more like raw type stuff. <laughs> I mean, so unmistakably Hodges. <laughs> why, why so? Uh, I mean, just his approach to tone and, and you know, Pitch. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he does that like sliding glissando, like yeah. on a note. His nickname was the Rabbit, um, which I think was connected to the, you know, his ability to bend pitches in this just like insanely elegant, refined way. Right. <laughs> that's, I mean, ah. I remember playing a gig at the Heartland Cafe up in Rogers Park at the time, actually, and I wasn't particularly happy with the gig, and I felt like I had a bad read on that night, and it was ages ago, and they put on a Hodges track (laughs) after the concert, and I just remember sitting in the corner thinking, man, I'm just doing something so wrong. (laughs) Like, why can't I sound like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's really one of those people who's like, entire approach to the instrument is so solid and, and defined and clear like you hear it and you're like why would anybody possibly play the saxophone differently than that you know there's no reason to but then you hear Charlie Parker and it's like well okay yeah, yeah, <laughs> same thing you know yeah. but but the vision yeah. is like just as strong I mean to yeah. me he's like certainly one of the main creators of, of alto saxophone I mean without a doubt what else in mean, his style, aside from you mentioned the, the tone? I mean, his ability to swing, you know, in, in this incredibly unhurried manner, you know. Um, he can do these incredible things where he, you know, 
<laughs> he'll fill in like all these 64th notes in between two notes of a melody on like uh, uh, don't get around much anymore or something like that and just dump you know just dump in this flourish that's like insane yeah but it's so relaxed and like smoothly executed it just you know it just like flows right off you know there's nothing even though it's this incredibly dense gesture, like there's nothing about it that feels hurried or, or anything. I mean, he's just he's he like completely defines like elegance. I think for me, you know, and that's tied into the Ellington thing too. Right. I mean, I think you know that that whole sound, that entire band, and you know all the long-term instrumentalists in it had that quality to them of just like laser clear thoughts and ideas and development and you know, I mean. You'd be hard pressed to to sit down and write stuff that's as as clear as this. You know what I mean? Everything you said doesn't sound, about his playing just now doesn't sound like it would be how people would describe your playing. Uh, <laughs> Definitely you know, not. Yeah. You're not. I mean, that's just not the mood you're <laughs> sure. going for. In, yeah, in, generally. Generally, yeah. at least. Um, from time to time, I do like to get into a space like this, but it definitely depends on the gig and right. You know, yeah. And I don't mean playing like playing standards and stuff. I just mean right. like having that kind of unhurried kind of, uh, yeah, um, sure. elegance. Um, that's in some ways in opposition to the kind of, what I think of as the kind of like Bertzman tradition or something that I would think of sure. as being more part of. I do think they're, I mean. But how are they connected? Yeah. Yeah, maybe in terms of pace or um, maybe that connection isn't there, but I mean, especially in terms of, I think the way I think of pitch or a lot of people think of pitch, I mean, the flexibility that he puts into his lines, I think, is a, a actually big part of um, some of the more free traditions where, you know, people do approach pitch differently, I would say. Sure. Yeah. And when I first heard... I mean, the interesting thing with Hodges is he's, like, really in tune, you know? I mean, yeah. If he's bending a pitch, he ends... Right on it, right. you know, where somebody like Ornette or Jackie McLean, for example, like really has their own system of intonation, you know. This is Shep. Is this a uh, fire uh, fire music? No, uh, nope. juju. No, yeah, magic, magic juju. Magic, yeah. 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 I mean, this whole period of Shep in the 60s is like one of the most creative approaches to saxophone. And like all the different things he brings together in his, in his tone, his, you know, it's like Ben Webster meets Sonny Rollins meets, it's astounding, <laughs> like what he does with the instrument. So what is he, aside from listing the names of influences, what is he? Um, he's just got this like incredible dark, thick tone. He has an incredible ability to like, you know, play these really strong lines, but then also vanish into nothingness, like in, in this airy, light Ben Webster-ish kind of way. You know, I mean, he can play these beautiful, soft, like tender phrases, and then like somehow push that same phrase into a into a scream. You know, what I, mean? I mean, it's almost like Mats Gustafsson again. You know, some of the stuff that he's that he does on tenor. Um, it's also so melodic, you know, I mean, it's, it sounds at times like really out, like he's playing all these weird runs and lines and stuff, but like, if you look at the contours of it, 
he's <laughs> he's nailing every you know like melodic or chordal tone basically and outlining the whole thing in such an incredible way. I mean, so that's with this particular example, that's really interesting that you say that about him outlining chordal things because there's no right. I mean, chorus. this is right. <laughs> you know? this, I mean, this is more of a vamp. Basically. Yeah, I wanted to play you something based on the biographical detail about you living in Ghana. Yeah, yeah. but I ended up like. Um, just having trouble picking any particular thing, because like, how do you pick? It was just hard to think of one track standing for an entire country, much less, <laughs> right. much less a region like yeah, West yeah, Africa. Sure. Right. And so instead, I this is sort of the sub for that, which was um, another American saxophonist uh, playing uh, over a bunch of people or with a bunch of people who are very explicitly drawing on West African oh, yeah, percussion. Yeah. So I wonder how, if your experience in Ghana, like playing music like this in any capacity like this, yeah. listening to music like this affects how you listen to this track. Oh yeah, certainly I would say so. Um, how? Uh, I mean, for one thing, like you were saying, well, there's no chords, there's no like, you know, melodic content, so to speak, but like to me, these drums are incredibly, hooked into to pitch, you sure. know what I mean? Just the set, like the way these drums are tuned and, and the way they sound. Right. Even the uh, the triangle bell thing up top there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like all defining, uh, you know, pitch centers, basically. Um, okay, so it does make it a vamp, not just To me, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, very much so. Um, but even with the drum kit, it's the same way. I mean, I think a lot of people tend to hear drums as a non-pitch instrument, and it's like, especially jazz drummers are incredibly specific about the way they tune their drums, and their whole sound is based around that, you know? So, I mean, playing with one drummer versus another, it's like, yeah. I mean, what makes them sound so different is that's a big part of it. Um, um, I mean, as far as creating momentum or drive forward, I mean, it's like, well, I mean, that's something that ties into non-choral music in general, but it's like, it's a narrative structure where you're building on melodic ideas or, I mean, there's so many ways to, to build momentum in music that are, you know, completely not related to chords or to chord cycles, which is what, you know, more straight ahead jazz or traditional jazz tends to do is rely on chord forms to kind of like keep some sort of momentum moving forward basically. Right. But I mean, that's such a rare thing around the world. I mean, most music from anywhere else in the world doesn't use chords in that way. So, you know, I mean, uh, the Indian tradition of long form improvisation is very much based on non-chordal motions and narrative structures in a way that, that flow. Um, so, I, I mean, to me, that's not, what should I say? Uh, it's not an astounding development of this particular music. I think they do an incredible job of it. Shep in particular, I mean, I, I can listen to him, you know, play 25 minutes and be yeah. totally hooked into it. Again, this is such a completely different vision of tenor saxophone than what anybody else was doing at that time. And especially somebody who came up, um, you know, is this new thing, thing, more or less under Coltrane, like on impulse and whatnot. The fact that he was able to still maintain such a such a strong voice and not somehow be like, I mean, this is so different than what Coltrane was doing, <laughs> you know. Um, and the fact that he was even at a young age able to put this forth against the other incredibly strong models that were around at the time is, is pretty amazing. You know? Totally. Yeah, that's interesting you say that, it'd be different. 
Um, I don't know if we'll be able to like, you'll be able to describe specific phrases, but I wouldn't yeah. think of this as being so wildly different from the Interstellar space track we've just listened to. Um, I guess, I, not that I would confuse them for each other, but it, yeah. some of just in terms of, um, Coltrane's also in that case not playing with a specific set of chord changes and he's doing these I don't know why I can't think of how to articulate what about the lines other than just like going like you know kind of like they seem somewhat similar like how would what would you think of as the definitive difference between what Coltrane's doing man that's a very good question I think a lot of what Coltrane what doing. was doing for a long time was I mean my understanding is that he was such an avid practicer and he certainly came out of this thing where I mean his his, I guess I'd say more traditional technical abilities on the horn to play scales and arpeggios and um, get around the instrument in that way. And his fascination, I think, with the mathematics of different intervals, particularly like one, four, five type pentatonic type. I think he really looked at all those like mathematical things in this way and like created these structures in his improvisations based on a lot of that type of thing. Whereas with Shep, I hear somebody who's coming almost more out of this like earlier melodic tradition of say Ben Webster or Johnny Hodges or something like that, where like he's taking these basic really melodic things in a way and kind of adding a lot into it, you know? Um, but I sort of feel like I don't know, it's a looser thing to me, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like Coltrane was like making triangles and, and these like really specific shapes, and Chef's making these like very, almost like calligraphy on a, on a screen or something, you know what I mean? He's like making these gestures with the horn and stuff that are somehow less specific and less defined, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah, okay, well, these are all people you know. Is this natural information? Yeah. Yeah, duh, okay. This sounds great. I haven't heard yeah. this, actually. Yeah. I'm totally digging this. <laughs> such a great, great thing together, you know? Yeah. Like just, I mean, like, Hamid and William Parker have an amazing thing together, and Hamid and Harrison Bankhead have an amazing thing together, but, I mean, as soon as you sit down with Hamid and Josh, they just have this, like, feeling together that's such a unit, man. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, the first thing that occurs to me, like, a couple minutes back there was, like, listening to Hamid basically stretch time, <laughs> you know, like, figure out ways to play on one side of the beat or the other to, like, to really stretch time, basically. Um, I mean, this is, there's a lot of polyrhythms happening in here, so you can, you know, choose as a musician what you want to emphasize, but, um, but these, like, really subtle shadings of the beat that those guys can really lock into together, where it's like, yeah, there's no tempo change, but it feels like things just slow down for 30 seconds. Like, that's incredibly amazing to yeah. me, you know? Yeah. 
Isn't it also somewhat mathematical? I mean, I guess it's more of an intuitive, felt mathematical thing rather um, than what, what Coltrane's doing. It's somewhat mathematical, I would say. I mean, if you really wanted to go through and actually clock it, you would probably realize like exactly what they're doing down to the millisecond. Sure. But I think, you know, as a musician on stage, executing that, I don't think it's mathematics. It's really like a feel thing. Yeah. You know? But it's like such a subtle, yeah. just a shade. You know what I mean? It's like the way a bass player decides to either play behind the beat or on top of the beat, depending on what type of feel they're going for. I mean, that's one of the things that I really love so much about jazz. I wouldn't really call this jazz exactly, but I mean, and who cares? But, um, but that's one of the things that I love about, you know, that type of music is, is these really subtle things that can, if you're really listening, just have such a huge effect. And if you're not really listening, it has a huge effect anyways. You, you're just not going to know why. Yeah. You're just going to know, wow, this groove is super great. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, it, you might even, if you were just dancing to it, like, or, you know, grooving to it, so to speak, yeah. like move your body in a different way and not really. Yeah, exactly. Out. Right, right, right. Which in a way is what this is tied into, you know, I mean, is, I mean, all this stuff coming out of West Africa, like when I was, when I was there for your study. Um, and what year was this? Uh, it was 1995 to 96. Um, Just placing in time. Yeah. I, I, you know, as soon as I got there, I wanted to start taking some hand percussion lessons, basically, and uh, talk to a couple different people, like, the university I went to had a music department, but there were also just a lot of musicians who would basically hang around out in this, you know, kind of shady grove outside of the music department and <laughs> and give music lessons to people. And so I, I hooked up with this guy who was uh, one of the drummers and dancers in the uh, national uh, dance ensemble of Ghana, basically, that also rehearsed there. And uh, he asked me, what was it? Basically, he he understood that I wanted to, you know, learn how to play drums, and he, and he was like, well, you need to learn to dance also, and I was like, nice. yeah, I'm really not. <laughs> I'm not did, a, did he make it? I'm not a dancer. <laughs> uh, and his response to that was basically, well, you can't, you can't read without learning to write, and vice versa, you know, these Damn. things are so connected to each other. Totally, you, that's awesome. You know, to, to do one and not do the other, you're really missing how these things develop and are intertwined with one another which I thought was really interesting. And like you just said, like if you're dancing to it, you'll you'll notice that yeah. inflection, you know. Sure. I mean really like yeah. Yeah, I mean I think when you're dancing in music in a meaningful sense you're doing a duet with the music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or entering the music or something. Yeah. So okay, so that's interesting that you say that because I don't think of your performance your your concept as a saxophone player is having much to do with dance music. Is no, that it doesn't. Not? <laughs> I'm a terrible dancer. I can't dance for shit. 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 <laughs> this is like one of my favorite tracks of all time. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, I mean, I could listen to this any, always. <laughs> cool. Hemphill is like one of my, I don't know, biggest heroes I would say for so many reasons like which ones his sound I mean his sound is just so raw his composing his I mean ah, his arrangement just everything 
this stuff grooves so hard and is so laid back. And I mean, this just goes up. 20, 19, 20 minutes. 20 minutes, yeah. Over this same groove, and it, it just keeps moving the whole time. Yeah. And I mean, both he and Bakita Carroll, just the way they play on this, it's just like, God, so endlessly creative, you know, what, what they're doing on top of this, like, amazing groove. <laughs> right, right. In fact, I mean, that's actually another thing that I love about this track is just his interjections on top of the melody, you know, the yeah. little solo bits that he puts yeah. in. I mean, that's that's Hodges to me, actually, you know. That that type of, like, little extrapolations on the melody over the entire band. I mean, that's coming out of that same yeah. thing, if that makes sense. Totally. He does a thing that reminds me of you right about here. Well, that's because I've been trying this. to sound like him for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think one of the things I love so much about Hemphill actually is he's like so unafraid to be a saxophone player and to like, you know, occasionally a note gets... Like, it's not perfection by any means, but it's like, it's like reality, you know what I mean? He, <laughs> like, he deals with the instrument and and all the accidents that happen with it, and he and turns those into gold, you know? I mean, it's like, like, yeah. There's nothing um, pristine or like proper about it. It's just super raw. <laughs> yeah, do you, are you saying he's doing that in a way that's different from playing with an extended technique? Is it like he's playing until an accident happens? No, but it's kind of like he embraces them when they do. You know what I mean? It's just like, yep. Yeah. We're all just here, that stuff happens. It just sounds very human to me, if that makes sense. Totally. Like he's not trying to control something or like, he, he just feels super comfortable to me. Right. Do you hear what he's doing here? Especially with this, like a solo you obviously have listened to a lot of. A million of, times. Yeah. So. Do you hear what he's doing? Uh, as expressing something emotional, or do you hear it as fully as an abstract form? Or does um, that not make I sense? I mean, I hear it as emotional. How he heard it, I don't know. You know, I, uh, all the musicians I know have very different approaches to that. I think. Um, I mean, actually, it's funny that uh, uh, therapy sessions at the Hungry Brain that we were both at yeah. the other night, where they right. were talking about the Messian piece and. Jeremy Denk, who's a classical pianist, getting sucked into the emotion of the piece, which is a really rare thing. I mean, I have the same experience. I like playing music. I think I tend to be more in like a musical space as opposed to an emotional space, you know. Um, but I think different people approach that with different ways, or or let themselves get into the emotion of something or not, you know. But that really depends on the individual musician. You know? Sure. I mean, that little stuff he just did. Can I go back and play it again? Sure, yeah. I mean, just, just 30 seconds back. Yeah, right before that, I, I mean, his, the sounds he's making are just so human, and, and you know, they're not rooted in, like, a scale technique or an arpeggio, or, like, you know, it's like these smears of sound that he's putting together in this way that, that has nothing to do with technique. 
I mean, it does, because he's got to have the technique there to be able to get that across, but it's like, it's the difference between putting words, like thinking out a sentence and then saying it versus just having that core thought and starting your sentence, you know? I mean, it's like, <laughs> children can't do that, you know? They have to, like, think through how to express something. Whereas adults can start a sentence without knowing what all the words are going to be before they... And that's what, you know, this new somebody like, this is like, it's like, yeah, he's not thinking about these building blocks or this scale or this whatever. It's like he has this sound in his head and he gets it out. I mean, one thing I'd say about this recording also before we jump on... Sure, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, the way Philip Wilson and, and Wadud are playing together, I mean, it's just so... It's so simple, you know? I mean, it's kind of repetitive. But it, it, it leaves so much room for Hemphill to do whatever he wants, you know? I mean, a lot of people think of, like, so-called free music as being, like, dense and crazy and whatever, and it's like, man, this is just, like, so pleasant to listen to and, totally. and grooving and slowly evolving, and, you know, and it's like... Again, there's so much subtlety happening here. <laughs> I mean, I can't remember exactly what the... Is this with Milford and, you know, Sonny Murray or... Yeah. And Henry or... No, and Gary Peacock. Yeah, okay. It's spiritual unity. Okay. Yeah. I tell you, it's going to be all softballs. I'm always terrible with, you know... Record names, album names, like I don't, for whatever reason, never pay any attention. Yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So, what do you, how do you identify them? <laughs> Just by sound. I mean, it's like the most raw sound of all time, you know? But I mean, man, you know, it's... Although, didn't you just say that about Julie's tempo? Well... They're raw in different ways. I think Eiler wins the award. Okay. <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, he's got this, like, tenor sound that's so... I mean, it almost sounds like an alto. You know? I mean, it's, like, so bright and... Uh... Yeah, I mean, listening to this stuff, I, I think I first got this when I was in college after I, you know, to some degree digested... Coltrane and Pharaoh and a lot of stuff that came out from that time period. And I really didn't know either of that well until, you know, yeah, probably my junior, senior year of college. And, uh, I mean, aside from him and his tone and his complete, I mean, it's completely non-jazz to me. Well, that's not totally true. I mean, I think his improvisations have a narrative structure to them in the way that jazz improvisations often do, but... The way his bands play, you know, I mean, what Sonny Murray's doing, what Peacock's doing, I mean, it's like, it's such a unity, <laughs> literally, I mean, to go into the name, it's like, they're all responsible for everything at all times, and it's, there's no role playing, there's no, you know, there's like an equality of what they're doing, which is like, pretty damn far ahead of its time, I mean, yeah. 
mean, some of the Europeans who were coming in the years after this, maybe contemporaneously, but, you know, a bit more in the years after this, I would say, and certainly Susan, Which ones are you Susan talking Taylor. about? Um, you know, Derek Bailey and, I mean, the whole Broadsman and... Yeah, the main guys. I mean, Evan Parker and, and all that. Um, but as far as an approach for, like, a drummer... <laughs> At this point in time, this is pretty radical. <laughs> right, you know? right. It's insanely radical. Right? And again, you know, people people dismiss free music as being super busy and dense and weird, and it's like there's so much space in this music, you know? There's so much breath and flowing and, and back and forth, and, you know, it's not just like screaming or something. I mean, yeah. Although the moments even got on recording, uh, what is it? Um, Vibrations is the first Isla record I got, which Don is Cherry. this band with Don Cherry. Yeah. And man, I mean, just on the recording, there's there's a couple moments where he leans into the bottom end of the horn like so hard. Yeah. And you can feel that on recording, like as if you're in the same room. And right. it's like to think of what it would have been like to hear him live and to hear that sound live is just. I mean, it's like unfathomable. You know? <laughs> I mean, what, like the dynamic range he was dealing with, and yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, dynamic range. I guess is part of what you're saying here. They're not, they're not just all blowing super hard. It sounds. Yeah. Actually, I wonder if it's related in any way to the dance thing you're talking mm. about earlier. Like, it sort of sounds like they're not, you know, not dance like dance party dance in any capacity yeah. or any tradition, but like uh, ballet or. Contemporary mm. dance, the various sorts of things where there's a few different people on a stage moving around. Sure. One another. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how I certainly hear a lot of this. Like when I say that they're all doing everything all the time, it's like they're all, yeah, it's like three people moving at the same time and interacting with each other um, right. in exactly that kind of way, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there is a unity to it, but it is like three different people on their own tracks, you know. So if it's like that, do you actually, I don't know if I'm just taking the metaphor too far here, but is it stagey? Is it like, I mean, we were talking about emotions before, maybe I was just pushing that line, but I, it's easy to imagine plenty of times, you know, you're seeing Eiler described as being like incredibly, like, it's like he, his playing sounds like a a cry of agony or a cry yeah. of ecstasy or joy or whatever yeah. but sometimes listening to it I guess I do also think of it it's sort of a little bit like it's a little melodramatic in a way it's like and I don't mean that in a bad way at all sure. like it's a little bit like the difference between hearing some somebody on the other side of the street like cry out in agony because somebody just called them to tell them that their mom died or something versus seeing that happen in a movie like it's yeah, yeah, more yeah, theatrical yeah, in a way yeah. I don't know. It, to me, it doesn't feel melodramatic. I think just because there's like I don't know. There's an honesty to what I what I hear coming from him. It doesn't feel in any way melodramatic to me. It's like yeah. the actual phone call. Yeah, okay. <laughs> if that makes okay. sense. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is another thing too, where I think about man, you know, what these guys had to go through to be trying to play this music at that time right. in within the paradigm that you know. Yeah, they're, ja they're black jazz musicians who are playing in a club, you know, they're playing at the Village Vanguard at a jazz club, or, you know, it's like, 
trying to fit this into that box is so insane. You know, the fact that they somehow were like so committed to what they were doing that they even tried to to do that is it's astounding you know like people always complain about how hard it is to be an artist now and blah 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 and okay yeah i mean I, i'm not saying that's not true but like the shit these guys had to deal with i mean come on <laughs> like, yeah i i actually um i went to see the exhibit at the mca last year yeah me too and there were a lot of things about it that i really found fucked up yeah tell me what I mean, a bunch of things, but one of them... And you're allowed to tell me stuff that you want me to cut out, but I'm sure. not cutting out if you don't want me to. One of the biggest things that bothered me yeah. was the first thing when you walked in and looked at Roscoe Mitchell's percussion setup. Yeah. There was a little placard in front of it that said, the Art Ensemble of Chicago was one of the most renowned or famous or best known something acts yeah. of the AACM. Yeah. And to me it was like an act? Like they what they're playing dress up and putting on a show for you? Right, right. Like I I seriously couldn't believe that that said that there and that and that it was allowed to sit there for the entire time and nobody maybe said anything about it. It's like who do you refer to as an act? Like is this a minstrel show? Like seriously, are you fucking kidding me? Like I, I I could not believe that. I mean, yeah. I thought there were a lot of other things about the show that I found kind of troubling, but That's, but yeah. just that was one right of the, the big point. ones. Yeah. That, you know, like, wow. <laughs> like, that completely misses the point of everything these guys work for. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the one possible justification I can imagine being for it was just, it's a different, it's a term that's just meant to mean band or group you know which is obviously what and I'm, I'm not sure. disagreeing with you but i'm but, just imagining that people don't refer to the rdd string quartet as, as an, an act. act yeah that's true right yeah, you yeah, know what well i mean said, Super huge. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny because you know I moved here in the '90s, and Fred Anderson and Vaughn were you know always the two basically patriarchs of the scene here. And everybody talked about Fred like he was like the out guy, and Vaughn was the straight ahead guy. Which like okay on the surface like okay you know Vaughn played. Tunes, you know, he played jazz tunes, and but like the way he played the horn, yeah, (laughs) it's like his intonation, like all this crazy stuff he does on the high end of the horn. In some ways, were like way more radical than Fred, who was like in many ways just like more of a traditionalist, you know. Um, The first time I saw Vaughn, I think was. 1996 uh, my first bartending job in Chicago 
was at a club called the Bop Shop that used to be on Division in Wicker Park. It was a great space for like, I think she was open for a total of probably 10 or 12 years, like probably open mid 80s and closed around 96, 97, it was 97. And uh, when she closed, they did a fundraiser in Lakeview and Vaughn was kind of the featured artist playing on this fundraiser thing. And he came in with a quartet and they started on Green Dolphin Street. And as soon as the first chorus came around, he cut the band out and then just played unaccompanied for like seven or eight minutes. And I mean, man, my jaw was just on the floor. <laughs> it was like so remarkable, you know? I mean, what was he doing? He wasn't doing, he wasn't doing acapella versions of that tune anymore or any particular tune. It was just, he was, long. he was improvising on Green Dolphin Street, oh, he but, okay. but I mean, it was as free as like listening to Roscoe Mitchell or something like that, or, you know, I mean, it was just like, whoa, because I'd heard about him, but I hadn't seen him before. And that was not like the, some of that wasn't the reputation <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, of, of what I heard about him. So, I mean, from that time on, I just, yeah, have been a fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny how, as a listener, seeing something that's not what you expect to happen yeah. is some, sometimes the most exciting thing. Like, oh, if, totally. If I know yeah, somebody, yeah. if I have the impression somebody's going to do, like, blistering free improv, right. that's right. not shocking right. to me. Right. I mean, Vaughn's, I mean, is a musician, he's incredible, but again, his, I don't know historical contribution perhaps and the same with Fred I think is just going to be the fact that like they were here in Chicago and mentored so many people you know I mean this this wasn't isn't a music still I think that really is somehow successfully taught in schools or something you know these guys were like the uncompensated professors of a university basically I mean they're you know the knowledge and that they shared with everyone in the um, encouragement and for, you know, Fred is a club owner, Vaughn, with his jam session that happened for so many years. I mean, they gave people an outlet to go learn what they're doing, you know, which is like such an important thing. And it's such a unique thing, I think, to Chicago that I think, you know, very much still remains um, in the community of musicians here it really does distinguish it from New York or anywhere else. I mean, it's this feeling of like, of being a community actually, you know, yeah. and having some type of like larger responsibility to the music and to the, to the musicians and fans and everyone else involved. You know what I mean? It's not just a commodity of some sort or just, you right. know, I'm not just an artist out here doing my thing, competing with the other artists or something. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, mm -hmm. we all are like doing something together. You know I mean? It's got a, almost like church-like thing in a way. I mean, right. It's, it's, and, I, and I think that really comes from the tone that those guys set for so many years. You know? Yeah. As far as like what's happening in Chicago now, I mean, you know, I think an organization like Elastic Arts, like Mike Reed running Constellation, um, ESS, um, these are institutions in a way that have their own missions and goals and histories. And I mean many of them are artist run and I think they do in a way very much come out of that specific tradition of artist 
produced events and, and concerts and you know that the AACM really set up. I mean, Elastic Arts, where I book concerts, is very much a you know a venue and an organization that's tied into the arts community and is certainly dependent on musicians to help run it. You know, I mean, many of the people on the board who you know kind of volunteer there, who work the door, all that kind of stuff, are musicians themselves. So, in a sense. You know, I think that's pretty directly connected. But I do think on some level, yeah, we've somehow managed to achieve some of the goals that the AACM, I think, was working towards. You know, I mean, the idea of like having venues where you can present this music that's not a bar, that's actually a place where people will come and listen and take yeah. this music seriously, you know. Like this same jazz <laughs> mentality of, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to go to the jazz club with my date and be entertained. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like, no, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> you, can, you can come check out the music and, you know, if yeah. you don't like it, yelp away because who cares? Yeah, right, right. Oh, are there... The thing. Yep. I recognize Ingebrick right away. Okay, so this is not from you knowing the tune. How do you recognize it? Just just sound. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, just with the solo bass, it could have been a number of different things, but yeah, we've played together a lot. I don't know. Yeah. It just sounds like Ingebrigt. Sure. <laughs> um, I don't know what to say about these guys. This is like yeah. one of my favorite bands working for sure. Yeah. So and you individually and collectively, I mean, all of these guys are like some of the best players on their instruments alive for sure you know yeah. I, I'm I'm a huge Mott's fan I have been ever since I think I first saw him play in 96 or so like with the empty bottle um, and I mean yeah I don't think there's anybody alive doing what he does I, fun, I mean I just love it <laughs> yeah yeah to, total fanboy which, what uh, aspect of what he does just everything everything the way it's all constructed yeah. together I mean he can play melodically he can play texturally he can do these insane articulations uh, his dynamic range is astounding his sound on all his horns is astounding I mean he's just an absolutely amazing musician I mean like the type of person that only comes along once a generation, you know. Yeah. And they're fun. I mean, yeah. It's just a fun band. Like yeah. the, the energy and the power and like their ability to push each other and I don't know. They're also all friends of mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like yeah. They're, just, well, they're great people to hang out with. They're so much fun, man. You yeah. know? I mean like just like total thrill seekers, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In life as well as in music. Completely. <laughs> Do you, so does yeah. the fact, I was going to ask you if the fact that you played a bunch, uh, in fact you have working bands with uh, both Paul and Ingebrigt, yeah. um, and um, like if that affects how you hear this, I guess also if yeah. fact, does the fact that you hang out with them affect how you Yeah, it totally does. I mean, it's, how, yeah. How, I, mean, you, how I can't, I, I don't hear this the way I hear Charlie Parker or Albert Adler. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like so, I can literally picture what these guys look like right now. Yeah, what, yeah. You know. I mean. So yeah. what? How does that change? How you? I mean, specifically to that. You don't have to speak as broadly, but specific to this track, like. 
I don't know. It's like when you see a friend, you're walking down the street and you see a friend coming in the opposite direction on the other side, and there's that, like, I don't know, just like excitement about it. Yeah. That's kind of how it feels. Oh, yeah. You know? Well, I would think that excitement would be like, oh, good, I'm going to get to hang out with my friend. Yeah, exactly. Like, when you listen yeah, yeah. to this, do you, yes. like, since you've played with these guys, oh, check out this thing Matt says right here. What the hell is he doing? Is he, like, playing the mouthpiece or something? A different instrument. Um, I really have no idea. He actually has a slide alto. Okay, is that what that which is? Which is like, okay, it might be. <laughs> I, but it also sounds like he might have taken the neck off the horn. Okay. Because you, you know, you can do all this just for that. I honestly don't remember what the slide alto sounds like. I've heard it once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was gonna say, so you see your friend across the street, and you're like, "I'm gonna hang out with them." When you listen to this, something a recording like this, especially something that's so open yeah. as a form, do you think about what you would insert if you were on, if you were hanging out at this uh, recording? If I was playing on this, you mean? Yeah. Or do you like, like listen uh, to this. Do you like think? I mean, just like naturally, to like things run through your head to to play, like as though you're sitting out and you're gonna be coming back in in a second. That's an interesting question. Um, no. That's nice of you. And I'm not sure if that just has to do with this particular band or other bands in general. I mean, yeah, I think when I hear Friends recordings, I don't normally think, okay, what would I do here? You know? Yeah. There's times when I hear concerts and I'm like, man, it'd be really nice to be playing on this. Oh, yeah. This is great. I'd love to be a part of this. You know? But there's also some things that are like, like, this is such a band, 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 band. Where do you place this uh, in this sort of continuum between like the Albert Eiler thing where there's people mm -hmm. just sort of moving around on a stage versus, yeah. um, versus say, like the Archie Chef thing or something? Or, I don't know, versus any of the stuff we've listened to. I mean, one of the things that I you know, like about this period of time is in some ways I think Eiler was moving away from you know certain things like strictly defined time and vamps or grooves or things like that because it was so predominant at the time and I feel like you know one of the major things in the music that's been interesting about say the last 20 years or so is figuring out a way to reconcile um, sort of European free improvisation with more groove-based music. I mean, comparing, say, Paul Lovins to Hamid Drake, for example, you're talking about like two really different players. But Lovins certainly understands everything about the subtleties of grooves and, you know, what makes certain things sound right and work right on drums. And Hamid absolutely understands the same thing from the opposite side. They don't necessarily always choose to do that, but they both can, you know. But it's like... You know, over the last couple of decades, like this kind of reconciliation in a way with the idea that like you can do all of those things, and I think that's a that band is a great example of of that. You know, because they can rock a groove so incredibly well, yeah. and also go completely abstract. You know, yeah. and and make it feel logical. It seems to me that contemporary Chicago jazz, uh, the scene that you were very much a part a part of, does that. Uh, yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think there's, you know, 
this is a rhythmic city and there's yeah. you know groove is is effective life here it has been yeah. for a long time and you know yeah i think that's an element a strong element of the music that comes out of the city which distinguishes it from other places for sure right <laughs> <laughs> gee i wonder who that is <laughs> recognize the sound so you know yeah no that's cool i'd like you to be able to articulate that if you can because if i heard that first thing specifically i'd be like oh it's somebody yeah who plays I mean, like peter likes to open generally i would say with okay. just like a total in your face blast right you know yeah i don't know let's say i'm a huge fan yeah he, in this piece in particular, he does go between really blasting and like incredible, there's an incredible amount of dynamic range. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I, I read something online, like just doing research for this, they called this the softer side of Peter Brotzman. Like this album, just like as a joke. Really? Um, yeah, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> but. I mean, it's funny. I, you know, I, I guess I got to know him more after we stopped drinking, which was like around 99 or something like that. Okay, I did. And, I mean, you know, his, his reputation is like, enfant terrible, and, you know, 70s and 80s, just like full charging, whatever. But in the time I've known him, man, he's always had this like amazing interest and ability in, in playing what what I would call basically a ballad, you know? I mean, he does these amazingly tender, raw, beautiful, soft, almost like Gene Amonsy sounding things that are like, uh, kind of go against the idea that, you know, he's just a screamer or something. And I mean, yeah, he can certainly scream more than probably anybody. Um, he and Mots, I think, can compete for that. And do, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I I think a lot of his music is actually really incredibly tender, you know. Right. right. It's funny. I don't. I mean, I own a bunch of Peter recordings, but I don't like most people I know who are alive. I'm not particularly interested in necessarily listening to their recordings. You know, I tend to base my experience and thoughts on them around seeing them live. Totally. So let me ask you a question about the ballad playing, because like you know, this, that, that was just an incredibly tender. Uh, yeah, I mean, just listen to that quiet stuff. There. Yeah, can we listen to it again? Actually? Yeah, I'm please. Rewind. <laughs> He's just playing his major arpeggios, you know. I would say that Brotsman is like, seems like you'd read about him as like the father of a style that I think of you as being a part of. Uh, that a style that uh, is often described with like adjectives that are like, you know, ass kicking and like balls out and like in these sort of like macho um, uh, <laughs> yeah. adjectives. Yeah. And I wonder if you 
see that as being a, um, a good use of that of metaphor or as a sort of distortion of what's something that something that's abstract and highly personal? Um, you know, I think that's an easy thing for people to latch on to because it's so visceral. People love loud and, and I mean, I do too. I like to play loud. I love the energy that pours into that and like the physical feeling of doing that. Like I love it. But there's a lot of other dimensions, I think, to certainly to Peter's playing, I hope to my own playing, to, you know, to any musician. I mean, there's an entire world of expression that's possible. And, and I feel like Peter, who often gets summed up as just an energy guy who blows his brains out. It's like, no, he plays this incredibly wide range of expression. Yeah. And it's easy for people to latch on to that because, like, that's the first thing they notice. It's the biggest, brightest, loudest, you know, it's just like... And as you said, he likes to lead with it. Yeah, sure, yeah. And kind of knock you in the face right from the start, yeah. you know. Um, Although even then you're using the metaphor. So I'm pointing out that even when he's playing, when he's screaming, when yeah. he, you know, and screaming is less of a metaphor because the playing sounds like a human scream potentially, but knock you, he's not knocking you in the face. He's making sound with an instrument, you know, like he's not... Yeah, but I think it can feel pretty visceral actually, like the experience right. of having that sound literally hit your body you know is is a visceral thing in the way that some things are not i guess i'm just saying like the meta i guess i'm saying the metaphors that are used suggest like i'm also guilty of the same thing is what you're saying (laughs) what do you mean uh of you know chalking him up to this like macho oh yeah i mean i'm not i'm not necessarily saying it's yeah you are i'm saying you are doing it i'm not saying you're necessarily guilty because it may be perfectly fine but the metaphors are ones of like men punching each other or something, you know, like that sort of thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is okay, not yeah, that it's a yeah. person playing an instrument and he is playing loud. And so in the sense, but it's not like, I don't know, that still is one step, you know, and, and as you point out, it, it, it doesn't encompass everything he does, but even potentially when he is doing something really aggressive, it doesn't yeah. have to be aggressive in the sense of a slap in the face or something like that. Sure. I mean, I mean perhaps that's just an easy metaphor, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think of your, do you think of that distinction, that balance between like smacking you in the face versus, um, drawing out something more nuanced, uh, or even, yeah, like we were saying before, like, um, theatrical or sort of like staged, is that something that you're thinking when you play? Like, no, like, I mean, as far as being a musician, I mean, that's never something I think like, I'm going to smack everybody in the face right now. <laughs> I mean, that's not ever a metaphor I would use to like describe an intent or something on stage. Right. Um, but yet you just did for his playing. Yeah, true. I mean, maybe, yeah, perhaps it's different as a listener, I guess. Yeah. Jeez, you're making me realize things about myself. <laughs> um, I think that's the goal. <laughs> it's hard to imagine a painting on a wall that would be described as like, balls out, smack you in the face, you know? Right. Because it's like, right. it's so obviously a static thing that you look at that it... it but I think there's something arresting about sound because it, it hits you in a way that, you know, you can close your eyes when you look at a painting. You can kind of put your fingers in your ears, you know, if something mm-hmm. hits your ears, but that still doesn't yeah. really block the sound out. So I think there's something a little bit more uh, invasive about sound, generally speaking. I mean, which is part of the reason why, you know, when people hear music they don't like, they get very offended by it. Yeah. I mean, really offended by it in a way that they go to the modern art museum and they see a painting that they, whatever, they don't like it. Maybe they find it offensive even, but it just doesn't. Yeah. 
they don't have the same type of response to it that they do to music, which is, you know, people get very, very upset. It is weird. It is weird that yeah. that happens. Yeah. It's bringing up a lot of different questions, but like, why is playing loud an inherently masculine thing to do? Why do we define it that way even, you know? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's like associating the color red with angry. Right. Why do that? It's kind of it's arbitrary. Like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean... There isn't an idea of like, yeah, I'm gonna like attack the audience right now or something or like, you know, but I really love the physical feeling of like pushing all this sound out of my instrument, you know, and like, like to a level that requires like, you know, a real strain on my body to make that happen. Well, yeah, because it is it is part of your instrument. Yeah, in a way, in a way yeah. that pl- if you're playing like electric guitar or something, you don't right. Have, you like, like your turn entire, a knob up. And, yeah, your yeah. entire like wind column is your, inst- yeah. your instrument. Yeah, that's an interesting physical challenge on its own. That it has nothing to do with like the audience or or like trying to evoke a particular response out of them. It, to me, it really has more to do with like an internal thing and in a thing with the other musicians I'm playing with. Where actually like the physiological things that you're having to do to make this thing happen or creating like a stress on you that is interesting and, and makes new things happen actually and makes things push musically in a way that they wouldn't otherwise because you're you're pushing your body into a different state of being that's perhaps more similar to like what an athlete or something is experiencing on a basketball court or something like that you know so i mean to me yeah that it's coming much more out of an internal thing of exploring that than it is out of some idea of like trying to punch somebody in the face or you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. which is I guess why I find as a listener I can use that analogy because that can be what it feels like but I don't, I don't think that intention is there from you know from the other side that there's like this aggressive posture towards the audience or something or towards other people I think that's misreading what's actually taking place you know it, it's an easy way to sum it up for sure it's convenient but I think it, it misses like the motivation behind it the instrument does very different things at that volume level it responds very differently you know, the same fingering does completely different things than it does at, like, what you might term a normal volume level, for example. Um, your body does the same thing. I mean, when you're when you're playing for five or ten minutes straight at, like, peak volume and you're pushing, like, masses of air through this instrument, or for a drummer, you know, where you're just, like, completely physically engaged into this thing for, like, quite a while, it changes what's happening with your body, but that also changes what's happening with your mind, too, you know? Um, and I think you can physically push through to some some different types of states, actually, where you're also connecting with the musicians in a different type of way. Um, I mean, this all goes, <clears throat> I think, really deeply back into like mystical or ecstatic practices that involve music. You know, I studied a lot with uh, Paul Berliner, who's an ethnomusicologist um, who was at Northwestern uh, when I was studying there. And he did a lot of work with the uh, Shona people of Zimbabwe, particularly on um, uh, Imbira stuff. Essentially, ceremonies that would take sometimes days, basically, of musicians playing for hours and hours and hours. And really going into essentially like almost altered states of consciousness, more or less. And I think, I mean, speaking for myself, and I, I think it's fair to say some, you know, many of the musicians I play with, that's a part of the uh, musical experience that we 
are having or, or going for is in a way this kind of like ecstatic thing, basically, that when you sort of reach that state, some new and different types of things are possible, you know? <laughs>
every saxophone player. And... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not everyone. Either. If you want to stick around for three more hours, we can. <laughs>